This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. Here's an idea. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Craig Shesky, the CFO of The Metals Company, trading on the NASDAQ as TMC. The Metals Company is an explorer of lower impact battery metals from seafloor polymetallic nodules on a dual mission. One, to supply metals for the clean energy transition with the least possible negative environmental and social impact. And two, to accelerate the transition to a circular metal economy. The Metals Company, through its subsidiaries, holds exploration and commercial rights to three polymetallic nodule contract areas in the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific Ocean. Regulated by the International Seabed Authority, sponsored by the governments of Nauru, Kiribati, and the Kingdom of Tonga. Go to the company's website, metals.co. Craig, welcome back to the program. It's very nice to visit with you today. Thank you, Will. It's my pleasure. Polymetallic nodules in the sea, batteries in a rock. Tell us all about the company and where you're headed with nickel production, hopefully. That's right. Look, we are developing what mining.com has recognized as the number one and number two largest undeveloped nickel projects in the world. These are C4 polymetallic nodules. So people talk about this category as deep sea mining, but it is very different than mining on land. And frankly, our view, and increasingly those who have looked deeper into the space, is that it's actually lower impact because these nodules sit unattached on top of the sea floor. They're not buried, so there's no digging or blasting or drilling. So we are collecting this resource that has four key metals, including nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese, all of which are now on the U.S. Geological Survey list for critical metals. So we have 1.6 billion tons of this resource in two of our three contract areas, which is obviously very big. It's an order of magnitude larger than any of these other undeveloped nickel projects in the world. And it's something that we can bring online in a time frame to actually matter. Because obviously on land, it'll take 15 years plus in many cases to go from discovery of a new nickel mine into production. And we expect to be in production now with our new laid out timeline just over two years in the fourth quarter of 2025. So a very exciting time to be getting into this resource and telling people about how they might be able to invest in it. You're literally scooping up rocks without any real environmental impact at all. Is that correct? Well, I wouldn't go so far. I mean, every extractive industry does have some environmental impact. And, and the question is how much and relative to other ways of getting these metals, because we need these metals, full stop, for the clean energy transition. If they're not coming from the seafloor resource, they will come from somewhere else. And Oftentimes that means a lot of carbon intensity per ton of these metals. It means deforestation, tailing, solid waste, and importantly, impact on local communities, because this is a resource that is very deep and it's very far offshore and it's in international waters. So it's not in anybody's backyard and a lot of the social impact that come along with cobalt or nickel production, this resource doesn't have that. So I wouldn't say there's no impact. What we are beginning to find, however, is that the impact of collecting these nodules is something that can be managed and mitigated and frankly, it's quite a bit lower than most forms of these metals on land. And two specific impacts that people focus on are the plume or the dust cloud that gets picked up. So you're picking these nodules up kind of like a large vacuum cleaner, and it does pick up a little bit of dust. And those who are against this industry will have you believe that that may travel for thousands of miles, that dust cloud. And what we're now seeing from peer-reviewed research, including some from MIT, and we're looking toward putting out our own research on this in the next few weeks. We shared a bit of it on our conference call last week. What we're finding is that that dust cloud stays very close to the seafloor and settles generally around the test area within a day. So even the impacts that are here, they are manageable and certainly much lower impact relative to where you would have to go on land to get these metals. So this may be a stretch here, but it basically has the same impact as fishing, maybe less. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, there is, you know, a lot of impact from fishing through a practice like trawling. And trawling every year impacts 175 times more seafloor than nodule collection would, let's say, in 20 years' time. So oftentimes people, of course, have a emotional reaction to the ocean. And the idea of mining in the ocean sometimes could be at odds with each other. But the reality is there's already a lot of commercial activity in the ocean. Of course, there's dipping, there's crawling, there's dredging. There's also offshore wind, which frankly, offshore wind would affect much more seafloor per year than seafloor mining. So I think people have to keep in mind the scale that we're talking about. This is not opening up the whole world's oceans to mining. In fact, the clearing Clipperton zone, the areas under exploration within it are less than half of 1%. 
of the world's ocean. And within that small little pack, there is 3.2 times more cobalt, 1.8 times more nickel, 1.2 times more manganese than all known land reserves combined. So there is a scale question that needs to be answered here. And here the scale is very large in terms of the metal that it can produce, but the scale is actually quite small in terms of the amount of ocean that would be impacted. I would think with the amount of impact or the lack of impact compared to other methods of, let's say, mining, that you'd have a lot of cooperation and impetus from Congress to move this along and to assist companies like yours. Yeah, it's been an increasing area of focus we're seeing from Congress and as well as the White House, frankly, all, both sides of the aisle are focusing on this. And while there are certainly people on both sides of the debate, we've now seen tangible action from the U.S. Congress. In fact, in July, there was a passage of the U.S. House version of the National Defense Authorization Act. And what that did was basically direct the Pentagon to deliver a report on how the U.S. can catch up on critical metals. But of course, the U.S. has been falling behind to China in terms of the processing and refining of critical metals. And one of the key areas of the focus is what can the U.S. do to encourage and incentivize building up a supply chain to allow for the processing and refining of polymetallic nodules on the seafloor? That was followed up in late July by a letter from nine Congress people to the White House, as well as the Pentagon, demanding action on this issue. So a lot of the debate in the media on this topic tends to focus on the environmental impact. And that's something we're learning a lot about. And frankly, that's all pointing in the right direction for us. But there's also a national security angle. You're talking about four critical minerals and for nickel, manganese, and cobalt, the United States effectively had zero or de minimis primary production of all three of those. And that's for nickel, manganese, cobalt, and NMC battery chemistry. That's not a good place to be for the clean energy transition to be solely dependent on Chinese supply. And a company like TMC from our contract areas alone could bring the U.S. metal independent. It would be very sad if U.S. had to give up hard-fought energy independent for metal dependent, and we don't think they have to do that. Just a question. I understand a lot of processing happens in China for minerals mined all over the world because there's just not enough processing plants in the West and maybe even Southeast Asia. So, of course, I'm curious about offtake with regard to the metals company. What have you got lined up in that area? Are there enough processing facilities in the world to handle all the resource that you have? It's a great question. And the answer is yeah. And this is one of the great things about a resource in that unlike on land where typically the resources you're going after, particularly for nickel and copper, these are metals we've been mining as humanity for thousands of years. And you go after the higher grade metals first, right? You go after the higher grade resources first. And now you're having to go to more far flung location, deeper into a desert or deeper into a rainforest to find the metals that you need. And that means you have to bring the infrastructure with you. You have to build power plants. You have to build rail roads. You have to build clean water facilities. You have to build local communities or in some cases, move local communities to access the resource. This is a situation where, because nodules are just picked up off the seafloor and then offloaded while at sea to a bulk carrier, that's a continuous mining system. The bulk carrier can take these nodules wherever the infrastructure already exists. Let's use nickel as an example. The largest nickel producing country in the world is Indonesia. A few years ago, Indonesia made the decision to stop the export of raw nickel to encourage China, who is mainly the country investing in Indonesia because China wants that offtake. China wants as much nickel as they can get their hands on. Indonesia made a decision to say, okay, we'll stop exporting raw nickel. China, you and anybody else who wants this material has to build processing capabilities within the Indonesian border. So that set off an interesting dynamic where there are a lot of RKEFs, rotary kiln electric arc furnaces. That's the type of line that we need to process these nodules. There was a lot of RKEF capacity in South Korea, Japan, China, Malaysia, that no longer have feedstock because Indonesia has said, sorry, you're going to have to build that capacity in country. So this has set up a great dynamic for TMC. Not only is it a CapEx light approach to offshore, where we're taking existing drill ships to collect these nodules, but then you take it to a place onshore where there's an existing processing facility. So that dynamic is something that we're absolutely taking advantage of. On the offtake question, we do have an offtake to Glencore for half of the nickel and copper produced in our Nori area. That's our first project area. And that, of course, is if we are processing at a TMC Ellis facility. So there are some nuances to that contract that could make some of that available. But we will continue to have discussions, not only with automakers, but with PCAM, precursor material companies, battery makers. There are a lot of people who are interested in getting their hands on such a scalable, high-grade source of this material. With regard to mining the resource itself, 
I'm thinking retrofitting ships. Is that going to be part of your strategy? Will it be easy to upscale the fleet more or less and contract out a lot of the work? It's something that we clearly intend to do to retrofit these ships. And when I say we, I mean our partners offshore, because there is an established industry like our partner Ulti is a part of in the offshore oil and gas base that has these drill ships that can be quite easily repurposed for nodule collection. There are several dozens of these vessels that are moored up in various places around the world that frankly don't have as much to do today. And in the coming decade, that XF supply issue, we think will only increase. So we're able to take these ships and have them retrofitted, but it's not PMC necessarily buying the ships and paying for the retrofitting. We consider ourselves to be the developers of this large resource and taking it over the course of a decade from exploration phase into exploitation phase. And that's where a core competency is, identifying the resource, permitting it, doing all of the environmental work. There is an established industry that's happy to step in and say, we would gladly for a day rate, a per ton fee, any sort of structure that you're talking about, we would gladly collect the nodules for you and take them to shore for an agreed upon rate. So that's something we intend to do. And again, that's firmly in line with our capital light approach. Now, Ulsees, our partner, is not alone in this. Transocean, the U.S. company, has devoted a drill ship to the space, to the Belgian contractor for nodule collection in the clearing Clipperton zone. There have also been public statements from several other offshore oil and gas companies, and that include Oil State, Stena, Saipem, Technique. So there are a lot of other eyes that are focused on this space, and it's really you know, mainly from the offshore oil and gas industry. This is fascinating. As the CFO of the company, you're daily aware of expenditures as far as cash is concerned. So where is most of the money going that you're raising right now? And how are you raising that money? The twofold question here, is it equity? Explain how you're raising capital, how you're burning it, and who your partners are in that area. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're very fortunate to have some of our most committed and largest shareholders actually being our partners, such as Alsi. Our single largest shareholder, Andre Karkar, also participated in the last capital raise that we announced last week, as did Alsi. So it's another round that we've done, mainly led by existing shareholders. There are some new shareholders that were in that round. There are existing institutional investors who have participated and shown their support again. And that was a transaction where we raised $27 million with potential to upside that $38 million at effectively an 82% premium to the prior day's closing price. So we raised money at $2 a share, which even today is close to 80% higher than where our current share price is. That's a very rare type of transaction in this market, but the people who are with us and continue to be with us in this long haul, they're not playing for a dollar or $2 or $3. They're playing for many multiples higher than that. And that's why we have the show of support in terms of that transaction. We announced that after the July meeting of the International Seabed Authority, and that's the regulatory body that first delivered the exploration regime for this area and now is expected to deliver an exploitation regime. After their July meeting, they laid out a new timeline, a new roadmap. TMC then announced, okay, we will react to that roadmap. We can work within that construct. And now we'll be in a position to launch our application to begin commercial work following the July 2024 session. And assuming that it's about a one-year review period for us to get our contract to begin commercial operation, we will begin commercial operations in the fourth quarter of 2025. To go from where we were at the time we made that announcement until making the application to begin work after the July session next year, we announced that we would need an incremental 60 to $70 million. Then we announced this transaction where we're raising somewhere between 27 million and 38 million. So there's still a chunk left north of 30 million, let's say, but we have a lot of options in the next year to raise that funding. And we wouldn't anticipate that it's going to be through doing another equity deal, even though the equity deal we did was that significantly above market terms. We have a lot of other options, including asset level financing, earnings, stake sale, prepayments on offtake arrangements, royalties, streaming deals, and potentially government funding. Because as we know, this has been increasingly in the limelight for media in the last couple of months. I would say with a raise at $2 at your current share price being 80% discount from that, that this is essentially a great entry point for new investors to become part of your company. Many raises, when they're done, they're either at market or slightly less than market. And I think that's really risky. So you've mitigated a lot of potential risk for investors, newer investors, I should say. Yeah, look, at dilution for existing shareholders is extremely important. And obviously, that's very close to our heart. I participated in the transaction. Our CEO participated in the transaction. And, you know, even though we're not happy with the share price is now post-transaction, we're happy to raise that money at much less dilution 
than the market typically would have dictated. Certainly for any new shareholders who are looking around this idea, I think they should recognize that this is a very, very big resource. The underlying net present value of which is measured in the tens of billions of dollars. And yet you're talking about a market cap, it's several hundred million dollars. And there is a disconnect there. And as we get closer to production and people become more familiar with this new segment, we'll trade on the fundamental value of that asset because that asset is there. We can see it. We've shown we collected it. We've shown that we're able to process it as well. So we're just waiting for that final piece of the regulatory puzzle, which by the way, the regulator is legally mandated to deliver. This isn't a question of them saying, yeah, do we really want to do deep sea nozzle collection or not? That was decided decades ago. The dual mandate of the International Seabed Authority is to deliver first an exploration code and then an exploitation code. So these aren't countries sitting around saying, should we do this or shouldn't it? It's just finally crossing the T's and dotting the I's on that final mining code, which by the way, is in pretty good shape. It first came out in 2015. They were on the fourth draft in 2019. And they intend to consolidate the text in advance of this November meeting in 2023. So they're really rounding the third base here on getting this done. What kind of milestones can we see coming into the fall? Well, I expect several milestones. First, you're going to see increased amount of environmental data. The culmination, really the fruit being born from our work over the last decade. And a lot of the environmental data has already started to come out with respect to biodiversity impact with respect to the plume impacts that I mentioned earlier, kind of that dust cloud that gets kicked up when you collect nodules. The initial results are very encouraging to us. And we think underpin the idea that nodule collection certainly can be done very responsibly and at a much lower impact than land-based sources of these metals. So that's going to be, I think, an increase a cadence of scientific support. That's also going to lead to increased certainty on the regulatory front, because you have another meeting from the ISA regulator this November, there's going to be another one in March. There's going to be another one in July. Well, I think what you saw in terms of trading in our stock over the last couple of months, there were a lot of retail investors who perhaps were expecting the ISA to give a green light or a red light, a binary thumbs up or thumbs down on this industry. That's never been our expectation. It's always going to be sort of incremental progress over the next several meetings. And of course, TMC has said, we are not going to launch our application to begin work until we finish our world-class environmental and social impact assessment. So I think rather than a binary decision, you're going to increase confidence on a lot of the scientific work that's coming out. And you should expect that to frankly, give more people confidence and institutional investors confidence to increase their position. I would also expect more milestones on the Washington DC front. I think you're going to get more catalysts coming and statements coming from real credible voices. And we've already seen a lot of this happening. Not only the Congress people I mentioned who wrote a letter to President Biden on this, but Senator Lisa Murkowski last year, who was writing to the Department of Energy on the potential for seafloor nodules. I think you're going to get more support on that front. You'll probably also get more support from credible people in the offshore space, such as Director James Cameron, who came out last month, the full-throated endorsement of deep sea mining. And his view is, look, I've seen more seafloor than nearly any other human on earth. And it's very barren. It's miles and miles of nothing but clay. And my gosh, I would much rather see mining of the seafloor, which with lower impacts than the alternative, which is child labor cobalt from the DRC or potentially rainforest destruction with respect to nickel in Indonesia. And I thought that was a very lucid and brave response. And you also had a very similar response from The Economist, which came out with three articles in July, imploring the world to think about seafloor nodules. And that culminated in an article that said it's time to mine the seabed. So I think the catalysts to look forward to are really on the TMC front, more confidence with our environmental program. On the regulatory front, that environmental program is going to lead to more confidence there. And then also, I think you should expect us getting to binding commercial agreement with our offshore and onshore partners by the end of this year. That's quite a lot. I'm certainly glad we spent the time to cover pretty much everything. Every question I had, and perhaps our audience has had it as well. And are you available to chat with anybody that wants more information than we've disseminated today? Absolutely. And look, uh, happy to give my email if you'd like, Ellis, but it's craig at metals.co. And if anybody wants to reach out to you directly, I'm happy to set up a conversation. It's a new space. There are a lot of questions to it, I know, but at the end of the day, the resource is the resource. And that resource is the largest and second largest nickel project in the world. And it's coming a lot quicker than I think most people realize. Craig, it's always great to catch up with you. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Craig Shesky, the CFO of The Metals Company, trading on the NASDAQ as TMC. Go to the company's website, metals.com. 
www.ellismartin.co. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Alicia Patterson, Director of Corporate Communications for Latin Metals Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMS and in the U.S. on the OTC as LMSQF. Latin Metals is a mineral exploration company acquiring a diversified portfolio of assets in South America, primarily Argentina and Peru. The company operates with a prospect generator model focusing on the acquisition of prospective exploration properties at minimum cost, completing initial evaluation through cost-effective exploration to establish drill targets, and ultimately securing joint venture partners to fund drilling and advanced exploration. Shareholders gain exposure to the upside of a significant discovery without the dilution associated with funding the highest-risk drill-based exploration. Latin Metals has concluded deals to option out exploration properties to a wholly-owned subsidiary of Anglo Gold Ashanti, a wholly-owned subsidiary of Barrick Gold Corporation, and Libero Copper. Alicia, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Nice to visit with you today. Thanks for having me, Ellis. It's really nice to be back on. It's my pleasure and it's my duty as you being a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Let me ask you about Argentina and what's going on there. It seems like you've got quite a bit of activity there and Barrick Gold is involved. It's not a small name in our business. No, yeah, no, definitely. Barrett Gold is one of our partners. And once again, they do the drilling. We have optioned out our property, Thero Bio, to them. And they've had it for the last year and they've been working really hard on it. And then they have submitted a permit for drilling at the property. So they've conducted rock chip sampling, magnetic survey. They've done all this work in the past year and now they are ready to we'll start drilling. I understand, according to your latest news release, they have the option to acquire up to an 85% interest in that project without you really having to spend dollar one to develop it. That is completely correct. Once we like our project, we're a prospect generator. So what we do is we get the properties to a certain point and then our partners like Barrick come in and they do the research, the exploration, the drilling all on their dollar. And we also get money from them because we have the project as well. What about your junior partner, Libero Copper? What's been happening with them? Libero, I think, has been busy working with the stakeholders in their communities and building up that relationship in order to secure their permits. I think recently they said that they are very close. They put a news release out saying they're on the very close stages of getting that permit. And that is once again going to help us because their permit is for a 5,000 meter drill program. So for us as brands, that's 5,000. But basically by the end of this year, if everything goes smoothly, Barrick, Anglo Gold and Liberal Copper will all be drilling by the end of 2023. And I think if I'm correct, we'll have about 20,000 meters of drilling with all three companies. And because of your prospect generator model, that's money they're spending in the ground. You don't have to do it. All you have to do basically with your company is continue to look for more properties that you can JV down the road with. That is 100% correct. And we have about 15 different properties at all different stages. So we're always acquiring more and we are always at different stages of exploring. And we have two properties currently that we're looking for partners. Latcha actually has a drill permit. So that means that a company can come in and drill right away as well. Your company's been performing fairly well considering the market has been a bit unfriendly during the last few months. The share structure of the company is at a place that looks potentially attractive to investors that are either involved in your company right now or thinking about getting involved. Let's review that. We're a company that has been around since 2019, roughly, since we've switched into this model as a prospect generator. I think that we've shown our shareholders, our long-term shareholders and new shareholders that we don't want to do a lot of raises. We work basically on $2 million roughly as a company every year. We do one raise a year, roughly between 1 million and 1.5. I think that we'll do that for a couple more years and then we'll be self-sustaining and people can only buy in the market due to the fact that we'll have partners giving us money every year. And if they find something, we switch to a royalty with that. 
So I think from us, our share structure looks really nice with 94 million roughly fully diluted and with the management and board owning about 50% of the stock. So everyone that is in Latin Metals has a vested interest in this company to succeed. We are not going to be raising five to six million dollars this year. We're going to do what exactly what we've been doing, probably raise about two million in October, November and go from very what we said we're going to do. Methodically, we do what we say. What have we got lined up for the rest of the summer and into the fall with regard to exploration and development of your properties? So the rest of the summer leading up into the fall, I think what we're going to have, we'll be putting a couple more press releases. I know our exploration manager, Edouard Leon, is currently at the properties exploring. And I saw some interesting pictures of donkeys with all the packs and everything going up the mountain. And so I think we're going to put some things out there and showing people how they actually get all the work and all the stuff up the mountain because it's insane of what they do. It's not, it's not... It's not cars, it's little donkeys and packs. Um, so they're exploring, they're doing, they're doing more exploration on our properties on in Peru. And then, you know, in the fall, we'll actually be going to a couple different conferences. But until then, we're just exploring our own projects. And hopefully maybe some partners will come out, out as well. I'm still thinking about donkey labor or should it be donkey abuse? I don't know. All right. That's great. So I guess uh, yeah. I guess the infrastructure is really good there. Alicia, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for all the information you just imparted today. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for joining me today in the program. And Alice, thank you very much for having me on. It's always a pleasure. You're wonderful. I've been speaking with Alicia Patterson, Director of Corporate Communications for Latin Metals Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMS and in the U.S. on the OTC as LMSQF. Go to the company's website, latin-metals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SYH and in the U.S. on the OTCQB as SYHBF. Sky Harbor is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada. The company has secured an option to acquire an initial 51% and up to 100% of the Russell Lake Uranium Project from Rio Tinto in the Athabasca with some of the most high-grade uranium targets in the world. Jordan, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. What have you been doing all summer? <laughs> been, it's been a busy summer. We've had a fairly active few months, really since March, April, announced a new partner company in North Shore Energy coming in. That deal is just closing and they'll be advancing our South Falcon project, which is adjacent to our South Falcon East project, in which another company, Tisdale, is actively earning in on. We've also made several new acquisitions over the last several several months, and most notably South Dufferin, which we finally closed on in May, a 100% owned project that we acquired from Dennis and Mines, a more advanced stage exploration asset that's drill ready. And we're actively looking to bring in new partner company at that project to advance that project going forward. And then just recently, a few weeks ago, we announced additional staking to the tune of about 14,000 hectares in new mineral claims, most of which are attached to existing properties that we have. So we were expanding those projects. We own 100% of these mineral claims are unencumbered with no royalties or any other encumbrances on them. Again, this will fit into our prospect generator business. And as we've talked extensively in the past, we're continuing an ongoing 10,000 meter drill program at our co-flagship Russell Lake project that's gone very, very well. Wrapping up the third phase of drilling there with results to follow that. The results will take us well into the fall and we're already planning a four to 5,000 meter diamond drill program follow-up program at Russell Lake for later this year to carry us into the new year. After that program, we will have likely spent enough at the project to complete the initial 51% earn-in and come in as the majority 
majority interest holder in the project and operator at Russell Lake with Rio Tinto as a JV partner. Now we do have a pathway to get to 100% as we've talked about in the past. So we'll make that decision as to whether we want to continue earning in up to the 100% at Russell or we want to simply lock in a joint venture with one of the largest diversified mining companies in the world. We also just in the last few days received another 1.6 million from warrant exercises. This was one strategic investor that participated in a financing three years ago. It was actually the last hard dollar financing that we carried out as we've had cash come in from our partner companies as a part of our prospect generator business, as well as warrants that have been exercised over the last several years. So this was the last batch of in the money warrants at 22 cents. They've been exercised now and the million and a half dollars that comes in fully funds us for all upcoming and continued exploration and drilling at Russell. And we also have a 43-101 mineral resource estimate, NI-43-101 compliant estimate underway at our Moore Lake project. So jumping around a little bit there, but bottom line, we've had a very busy summer and we have a lot coming up in the fall, a lot of news flow and a lot of catalysts. Well, you're no slouch. I'm, you've been extremely, extremely busy and I would expect nothing less. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Are you the largest junior stakeholder of ground in the Athabasca? We're working our way up there. We're now with the recent staking we just announced a few weeks ago. We're up to over 518,000 hectares or over 1.2 million acres of property and mineral tenure in northern Saskatchewan in the Athabasca Basin, the highest grade depository of uranium in the world. And that puts us at the third largest mineral tenure holder behind Cameco and, and one other companies. It's great to have this dominant land package that we do have. It's worth noting that we have projects ranging from earlier stage exploration properties, more grassroots assets, right through to more advanced stage exploration assets like Russell, like Moore, like Falcon, that either host small uranium deposits and resources and or have high grade multi-percent U308 in historical and previous drilling that we've carried out. So you get the full spectrum of exploration projects in our portfolio. There's now 24 properties. The two main projects, Russell and Moore Lake, are the co-flagship projects and the projects that we're actively advancing currently and will continue right through this year into the new year. But we've got nine other of those 24 projects that are either under a joint venture or option agreement with strategic partners and another 13 projects that we own 100% of that we're actively looking to option or joint venture out. So it's a significant project portfolio. It's taken almost a decade here to build up, like I said, one of the largest in the region. Clearly, you're a forward thinker because you've been working at this for 10 years. As far as I can remember, you've been involved for quite a long time personally with Sky Harbor, and you've been positioning yourself for an eventual run of the market while everyone's focusing on lithium right now and then copper. When is the long-term buzz going to be all about uranium? Because you're preparing for that, and you have all these projects, and you expect more junior companies to come online or mid-tier projects to come online and scoop up some of your land. When do you think that's going to happen? I think we're there right now. Sky Harbor is very well positioned for this rising uranium market. We've seen the early, early innings over the last few years of what I think will be a long protracted bull market at 55 to $60 uranium, where it is currently, I think there's a lot of runway. And between the two main projects that we're advancing, Russell and Moore Lake, actively drilling, working on a resource estimate, coupled with our prospect generator business, whereby we've got eight separate partner companies, two of which are joint ventures, one being Arano, France's largest nuclear and uranium mining company, the other being Azincourt, which worth noting, just announced drill results from a program earlier this year and successfully intersected elevated radioactivity and uranium in several drill holes. They're seeing all the right indicator minerals, including illite and dravite. And so they're, I think, well on their way at that project. We retain a minority interest at that property. And then we've got six other active earn-in option partner companies at seven other projects. We're expecting at least three, perhaps four of these companies to be either drilling or carrying out a significant exploration program in the next six to 12 months. Keep an eye out for news on those various projects and those partner companies. 
So we're well positioned to take advantage of this rising tide and just a couple of key, I'd say, developments more recently in this space. One, the geopolitical risks and security of supply issues that we are seeing right now in this industry, in the uranium and nuclear fuel markets is quite notable and worth talking about. We've seen this market bifurcate east versus west and it really ramped up, if you will, back when Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, clearly the line has been drawn in the sand. And if you look at global supply demand, uh, you have about 190 to 195 million pounds of global demand. And we're only producing through primary mine supply about 140 to 145 million pounds of primary mine supply. Now, over 40% of that alone comes from Kazakhstan and another 10 to 15% coming from Russia. And there's other parts of the world that are less friendly to the West that produce a lot of uranium. Just moving back to Kazakhstan. So Kazakhstan right now, as the world's largest producer, has really kind of had to toe the line, if you will, West and East. And what we're seeing play out there is even though they are shipping material, continuing to export to Western clients and consumers, the likelihood of that continuing to the extent it has gone on is, I'd say, very, very slim. I think we'll continue to see more material, more product out of Kazakhstan earmarked for Russia and China. Just in the last several months here, we've seen some major developments, including a significant contract signed by CNNC and Kazatomprom. China's accounted for over 35% of Kazatomprom's sales revenues over the last five years or so. And so I think we'll see that number continue to increase. So you've got China on one side, and then you've got Russia on the other side. And let's not forget, Kazakhstan was a former Soviet state. When we saw the uprisings and rioting that we saw back in early 2022, it was Russia that came in and intervened and brought order back to the country. And I don't think we're going to see that close tie between Kazakhstan and Russia loosen anytime soon. The main route for export of nuclear fuel and uranium from Kazanomprom to the West is through Russia and is through the port of St. Petersburg. Um, now, material has still moved through the port of St. Petersburg, but I think that the security of supply through that route is a major, major issue. In fact, just recently, we saw some problems with ensuring that material that was moving through the port of St. Petersburg, which led to some delays. And it was Tim Gitzel, the CEO of Cameco, who commented on this, saying that if there's any major prolonged delays to this route, that could be very, very problematic and could be a supply shock akin to what we saw back in 06 when Cigar Lake flooded. And, and for those that remember that event, that was a major supply side disruption. So bottom line is there's a number of things brewing geopolitically and, and a number of issues with security of supply for Western consumers and nuclear utilities. The other one more recently, too, that's come up is the military and political coup in Niger. And Niger has been a major source of uranium and nuclear fuel, in particular for Europe and France, over the last several decades. Although they're only about 5% of global primary mines, but it's not insignificant, but obviously not one of the largest producers. They have, over the last decade or so, provided about 20% of the uranium and nuclear fuel for French demand. And so we'll see. It's a very fluid situation right now. So we'll see how things play out. But the word is that the borders have been closed or there's a lack of trade in and out of the country. So we'll see how things play out. Hopefully it does work out for the best. But it just, again, highlights some of these geopolitical risks and factors at play currently and how the market is very much bifurcating east versus west. And in the West, in the US, Canada, Western Europe, Japan, South Korea, that's where most of the demand for uranium and for nuclear fuel is still to this day, even though the, the East, particular China, with plans to build 150 new nuclear power plants and reactors 
over the next 15 years, it's more nuclear capacity coming on in China alone in the next 15 years and has come on in the last 35. It's still worth noting that even though we see the East rising in terms of demand for uranium, the West is still where most of the demand comes from and the West simply is not producing enough uranium. So that's something that is worth keeping an eye on is Western utilities and and Western demand are going to have to start relying more on Western suppliers and Western mining companies. And then just one last note on sentiment and seasonality. We continue to see the sentiment improve around nuclear energy as the only source of emissions-free, base low 24-7, reliable, affordable, scalable electricity generation. There's a seasonality at play. We, we typically do see a fairly strong few months from late August right through into October and November. Usually the World Nuclear Association Symposium, the WNA conference in London right after Labor Day is kind of a good proxy and, and litmus test for the market. And that's coming up in several weeks, which we'll be at. But it's worth noting that, you know, we do see a typically seasonally strong period from late summer right through the fall and into early winter. And just on some developments in the U.S., I think that are worth talking about as it pertains to improving sentiment in the sector. There are now 15 bills working their way through Congress that are aimed at helping boost U.S. nuclear industry and domestic nuclear fuel cycles. So that's uh, that's unprecedented. Clearly, there's bipartisan support across the aisle. And uh, we're seeing that not just in the U.S., but in a number of Western countries, Canada as well. We've, we've seen a push and a doubling down on nuclear, France, South Korea, other European nations. So the sentiment is improving. We're going to see, I think, that translate into higher demand, especially as we see new reactors coming online, both the larger traditional conventional Gen 3 reactors that we're seeing being built in China, in India, in other parts of the developing world, but also seeing some of these new SMR small modular reactors being commercialized and built as well. So the future is bright for nuclear. And we're seeing, I think, again, just the very early, early days of this, what I think will be a very long, notable bull market for this commodity. And, and needless to say, the uranium companies stand to benefit. And while the price of uranium is fairly solid right now, the equities aren't really commensurate with the price of uranium at all. So I think that's the one thing across the board. That's the case for the entire mining sector right now. So maybe we can expect some sort of turnaround with, with the stocks again across the board, not just with your company, but with, with many companies in the sector come the fall. We don't know, but it, it certainly looks good. It's a great time to think about getting involved if that's what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the smaller and mid-cap uranium equities have certainly lagged the commodity itself and some of the larger cap names like Cameco. Cameco has been consistently hitting 12-year highs over over the last several months. And that's a, a great bellwether for the sector. I think you'll see that capital that's coming in, that's moving the Cameco share price higher. I think you'll see that trickle down into some of the mid and smaller cap names. And you know, I did point out the seasonality that we've seen. But yes, that's a great point. I, I do think there is very strong value right now in a number of these companies, especially the smaller and mid-cap names. And I've continued to add to my position. I've been purchasing shares in the open market, and I think there's great value for Sky Harbor. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, the president and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and the U.S. on the OTCQB as SYHBF. I'm Ellis Martin. You may assume that Ellis Martin is a shareholder on any of the companies that sponsor the Ellis Martin Report. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment of the Ellis Martin Report, I speak with Mike C., president of Gentle Gold Corp., trading on the CSE as GTCH, and the U.S. on the OTC is GGLDF. Gentle Gold is primarily directing its efforts on its most advanced stage asset, Fondue Canyon, a past gold producer with a significant in-the-ground historic resource estimate. To date, the company is defined at its Fondue Canyon project and indicated an inferred resource of over 2 million ounces of gold and that may be just the beginning. Mike Sieb is a senior executive with over 30 years of strong corporate and project management experience in international mining and exploration across multiple commodities and jurisdictions. Mike, welcome to the program. Great to have you on the air with us today. Thanks, Alice. Good to be here. 
Now, according to what I read in your latest news release, which just came out on August 8th, between indicated and inferred, you have over 2 million ounces of gold, and you're just getting started at the Fond du Canyon Gold Project in Nevada. Am I close? You're absolutely correct. We've only been at this for three years, and in those three years, we've doubled the historic resource with just 18 drill holes. With only 18 drill holes. Now, relative to your market cap, those numbers work out to about less than $10 an ounce of gold in the ground at $1,900 an ounce approximately. If you look across the market, the junior space and especially the junior gold company space has been overly suppressed relative to where the price of gold is. From your investment dollar, you can always invest in a producer. And a producer generally will follow the gold price up and down. So if you time your investment correctly, good for about maybe a 10 or 20% return on your investment. But what you want to really be looking for is you want to be looking to where can I accentuate my investment dollars. And Getchell Gold Corp is an advanced exploration stage junior mining company, gold in Nevada. The jurisdiction provides you with a good reliance. But what we have is, yes, we've been suppressed like the general market, but we have a true foundational value in the ground, which you just stated. I mean, those are big numbers. There's gold like everywhere. And you can really accentuate your investment dollars if you time your investment correctly. Looking at the market right now, we have to be at a low. I mean, we must be bouncing at the bottom. If you believe in gold, which you should, if you want to apportion a percentage of your investment dollars into the gold space, companies like Getchell Gold, you should be looking at where we have a true foundational value. We have incredible upside. And when the gold runs, which I'm a firm believer, it's going to run here at some point in time because the macro fundamentals are coalescing and it is going to react that you can really get a really huge bump on your investment dollar. I want to speculate a little bit because I've seen these cycles for the last 25 years now. And especially now, we have at $1,900 an ounce, that's nothing to laugh at. That's pretty much a high. It was up to 2050, I think, months ago, and that was a, a bit of an anomaly. But $1,900 is strong. The equities are weak, weak, weak. And I think that's sort of a jack-in-the-box effect. And I wonder if that's a little bit manipulated so everybody can get positioned for this boom that will eventually come. It will come. There will be a gold rush in the equity. We don't know when. So I'm not wrong in saying that. I'm not wrong in saying that. If you're going to look for an opportunity, you've got to consider a company like Getchell Gold Corp, which I just became familiar with, honestly, just a few months ago. I'm somehow missed it, but that's okay because What's going to happen is if we position ourselves in a company like yours right now, get in now, when that boom does happen, and you have to look away. You can't look at the market every day to see how your stock's doing. That's ridiculous. You're a nervous investor. Go away. You <laughs> <laughs> Just go away. You have to pay attention now and get involved. Get in before the stock potentially, I'm using the word potentially, hits 50 cents, hits a dollar, hits a dollar 50, which a lot of these junior mining companies in the gold space will, it'll happen someday. It'll happen when the market has its rush. And then everybody comes in at a dollar because they don't want to miss out when people like myself and other folks are coming in, let's say 20 cents. That is a potential five banger. There's no guarantee that's going to happen. There's absolutely no guarantee that's going to happen. But if you're looking for a gold resource right now, and a lot of folks are not interested in early stage, they just don't want any greenfield. It's too risky for them. And even the majors don't want to invest and the funds don't want to invest in early stage companies. You're not that. You've got a great project in Nevada and you're just getting started. Yeah, well, you hear all the great stories that investors, when they sit around the coffee table and, and chat about how many times they've got a 10-bagger on this huge discovery, a one-drill-hole discovery. Those are wonderful, but that's maybe one in a hundred. And it's the risk factor is what you talked about. With Getchell Gold Corp, we bypassed that risk factor. And so you're looking at where your investment dollars need to go. And we have that strong foundational value that is suppressed. You were saying the numbers right there. How much lower can it go? And it can't really, because it's a rubber band effect. The rubber band has been stretched a little too far to the bottom. And you know, when it springs back, it's going to spring back strong and past the whole medium point go up. And so that's what you're looking for. Something where you can put your money into and it, it doesn't have much downward risk. But when you take into account what's going to happen in the gold market, take into account what our exploration dollars being put into the ground are going to do 
that is where you're really going to get your bang for your buck and you're going to get your potential multiplier without the downward risk. Why did you decide to come on the air with me now as opposed to maybe September or October where there's more likely of a chance of a market turnaround than the middle of August? I've been pounding the table all the way through the summer here, you know, saying, look at our share price, look at the price of gold, look at what we have in the ground, look what we can find more gold in the ground. And I want to get that word out because this is a hell of an opportunity for people to take a serious look at us and really determine if we should be one of those eggs in your basket. Again, that's why I'm here because I want you to consider putting Getzel Gold Corp in your basket. And the basket is a very important component of investing, actually. You cannot just pick one company and throw all of your money into it because something could happen or nothing could happen. And there's all your money in one particular egg. It's always good advice to pick a basket of stocks, whether six or a dozen or just three. Pick more than one. And if your portfolio does not have Getchell Gold in it at this moment, consider it. Again, we can't tell you to buy. We can't do that. But this company has a fiduciary duty to talk to you, actually, and appeal to you to grow its shareholder base. If Mike doesn't do that, then he's not serving the current shareholders of the company right now. And it's very, very important that we do get the word out. And I thank you for sponsoring this program. It's really great to have you on the air with us. And what can we see coming down the road? You've got a lot of ground and you're just getting started. We have. I mean, I could go on at length about every drill hole that has hit gold because you know what? Every drill hole has hit gold in the last three years. We haven't missed on one drill hole. We've delineated about a 1,500 foot by 1,500 foot area with gold starting at surface in three years. And it's still wide open. That's the message I'm trying to get across is it's still wide open. I mean, one example is one of our most peripheral holes. So there's no drilling beyond it. It's right at the edge of our drilling. It intersected 204 meters of mineralization. So that's 670 feet. So if you were to park a drill on top of a 65-story building, and drilled down to the ground, that's the length, that's the intersected length of mineralization that that one drill hole encountered. And that's at the edge of our drilling. So it's wide open. And here's something else that a lot of people don't know, is that there's one drill hole another 800 feet away that ended in mineralization. And there's no drilling in between. So this could be huge. And when we're talking about Nevada, I mean, Nevada is right with huge gold deposits. I mean, it's been funding and supporting Nevada taxes for the last like, 40 years. Something to note though, is that over the last 25 years, the production in Nevada has dropped by 50%. And so this has been a major windfall for Nevada. Nevada is number one for investment dollars in looking for gold relative to the rest of the world. And this is where you can really not just make a name for yourself as a company, but become one of the big names. And Getchell Gold Corp has only started. Yes, we've been drilling for three years, but we really haven't even touched upon how much gold we can find there. You know, every now and then a group of us journalists and people, my peers, your peers, we sit around at these conferences when we get together, whether it's Vancouver, Toronto, New York, what have you. And we talk about the shoulda, woulda, couldas, right? Great Bear was a story. I think that happened last year or the year before they got taken out by Ken Ross. And I would love it if this became the talk of the trade. And by the time that happens, it's going to be too late for new investors, I think. We don't know when it's going to happen. What will be the company of 2023, 2024, 2025? What will it be? Your manager of investor relations is one of my oldest friends in the business. His name is Fred Cooper. And prior to this, he retired from Silvercrest Metals. And that particular company and their stock went from 16 cents in 2016 all the way up to $20 without even being in production with their silver play in Mexico. And then he retired. You basically pulled him out of retirement. And I've got to take note of that. And he's working with you every day. How can you get a man who's comfortable, who's a man of a certain age, like I am, how do you get him to come back to work again? Well, it's such a great story with such huge potential. He started off as just a singular investor and he followed the company and he saw all the news releases. And every news release we put out between 2020 and 2022 was a, a continuous stream of good gold intercept from the drilling. And you can't not follow the company without really understanding the pathway that we can potentially do over the next number of years and the upside potential. And so he closely followed us as Fred would do. 
And when we were talking about bolstering our investor relation team, somebody recommended Fred and I said, well, Fred's retired. He's not going to come out of retirement for this. But he was actually excited. So to have somebody of his caliber excited about his story, it speaks for itself. I've been speaking with Mike Sieb, president of Getschel Gold Corp, trading on the CSE as GTCH and of the U.S. on the OTC as GGLDF. Find the company on their website, getchelgold.com. Getchel is spelled G-E-T-C-H-E-L-L. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp, a public mineral exploration company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the symbol ORRCF. Oroco is focused on the development of a large copper deposit in the Santo Tomas project in coastal northwest Mexico. Oroco currently has an 8.5 billion pound copper endowment announced in May of this year after an extensive drill program. Copper mineralization at Santo Tomas is located at surface and therefore potentially amenable to low-cost mining methods. It's very well located with respect to the infrastructure that's essential to a large mining operation. And Mexico is among the world's top mining jurisdictions with laws and trade agreements that protect the rights of mining companies. Since commencing exploration and resource definition at Santo Tomas three years ago, Oroco has made a series of rapid advances. These milestones will be achieved against the backdrop of a positive forecast for the price of copper, possibly to historical highs, as a result of dramatic shifts in metals' importance to industrial and consumer markets. Adam, welcome back to the program. Great to have you on the show with us today. Thanks, Alice. Always good to be here, and good to be here in particular on the day after you experienced a hurricane. Good to see you doing well. Thank you. It wasn't as bad as people predicted. The Inland Empire got slammed a bit. Palm Desert got kind of deluge, but over here on the coast here in Malibu, we seem to be doing just fine. And I've been looking at some of the comments that people have been leaving for us on YouTube and other places regarding Oroco, and they're wanting to know what's happening with the company. Why are we talking if there's nothing substantive to talk about at the moment? And I just think that there's a huge, huge supply crunch coming for copper. And to give you an idea where I'm coming from here, I'm heading back to New York for my 50th high school reunion in a few days, Adam. And when I was living in New York, growing up in the Hudson Valley, I was obsessed with copper. I built a hand crank generator with copper core to it and mag cranking out electricity. I built an electric car, a small one, in 1965 when I was 10 years old. In 1970, in high school, I covered pollution, air pollution. This was just as the EPA was getting going and we had a debate on it. And I prepared for days and days and days. Here we are 53, 54 years later, and we're just getting going on enhancing the grid, electric cars. Why the huge gap in your opinion? And why the rush now? This should have just happened years ago. This should have. I recall as well in the 1970s in high school, learning about these things and being anxious as a consequence. And I think all of our generation were aware of the science, aware of the technology since that time. A lot of these technologies are only coming to the fore right now. And quite interestingly, a few decades late from the perspective of some of us, but the New York Times published a trio of articles uh, titled The Clean Energy Future is Arriving Faster Than You Think. And this was published about a week ago. Subtitled, the United States is pivoting away from fossil fuels and towards wind, solar, and other renewable energy areas, even in areas dominated by oil and gas industries. It goes on to say, across the country, a profound shift is taking place that is nearly invisible to most Americans. The nation that burned coal, oil, and gas for more than a century to become the world's richest economy, as well as historically the most polluting, is rapidly shifting away from fossil fuels. A similar energy transition is already well underway in Europe and elsewhere but the United States is catching up. And I think it's important to cite here, as this article does, some of the forces that are bringing that to play. It's not necessarily ideological. It's not necessarily political. It is economic. Renewable energy has become some of the cheapest in many, many markets. Certainly in the American South, Southwest, renewable energy in the middle part of America where the wind blows constantly, renewable energy has become the most cost-effective. You add to that political incentives economic incentives that come from the Inflation Reduction Act and other pieces of legislation. And there are trillions of dollars, not just billions, but there are trillions of dollars moving into that sector. The U.S. electrical energy transmission grid, for instance, currently has about $1.3 trillion of copper in it. It is estimated that that has to increase by 30 to 40% 
in the coming generation. So it's not just billions, but it's trillions of dollars that's needed through all sectors, through all phases. Energy generation through renewable means is far more copper intensive than through fossil fuels. The transmission of electricity requires great deals of copper. And the end uses, cooling, heating, kinetic energy, like um, the motor of an electric car, for instance, again, very, very copper intensive. So the United States is finally catching up, and I think catching up in the best way, because of economics will drive decision making more than any other factor. And we see that now aligned between the three biggest economic drivers in the world, the US economy, the European economy, and China. China has, of course, tremendous head start on renewable energies, renewable energy technology and implementation. But with the United States now in the mix, those forecasts of increased copper consumption are really starting to take shape and take shape in ways that we as North American investors can see firsthand. The increased use of copper over the next generation, over the next several years, as a matter of fact, is expected to vastly exceed the world's ability to produce copper, at least as it's understood today. The number of new mines that are needed to supply copper and other metals exceeds what is currently on the drawing board. And in the case of copper, the number of new mines in the pipeline to be put in production over the coming decade or so is at historical lows. It's lower than it was 25 years ago, prior to the emergence of China as a huge consumer of copper, and we saw what happened there. Copper prices increased sevenfold between 2001 and 2013. So we've got fewer projects to put in production than we had during that phase. We've got larger increases in copper consumption coming than we had during that so-called super cycle. And that is indeed a formula for higher copper prices. Projects like Santa Damas, with its recently announced eight and a half billion pound copper endowment at surface in a favorable jurisdiction, in a jurisdiction which will benefit from U.S. legislation that favors its trading partners, like Mexico, is set to be one of those deposits that sees a benefit from these trends. Thank you for that comprehensive dissertation on copper. I think it's important for our audience to understand the scope of the the benefit and the problem that we have right now. If you could explain the case for the equities, though, like gold, like all the other metals now in the junior mining space, there's a huge disparity between the price of the metal itself and the stocks. Let's talk about positioning oneself for the eventual closing of that gap in copper prices and equities. We have a parallel, and that parallel is the super cycle that ran from between approximately 2001 until 2013. Copper prices, as I mentioned earlier, increased sevenfold. Equities followed. It was a bull market for those companies that mined and floored for metals. When the underlying value of the metal increases in value. Of course, the value of the company's assets will increase, their earnings will increase. But there's also a lot of attention that comes into those sectors. Most of the time, most of us don't pay attention to the metals around us, the fossil fuel that drives our cars, etc. And it's a saying in the mining business, it doesn't matter until it matters. And when it matters, there's a lot of attention focused on commodities. Oroco is in the process right now of doing a preliminary economic assessment on its Santa Tomas deposit, which is a report which covers the capital cost and the operating cost and the projected cash flow of our Santa Tomas deposit. One of the variables in that preliminary economic assessment, or PEA, is the price of copper. When you increase the price of copper in these discounted cash flow models that are part of a PEA, you see the net present value rise, and not just rise arithmetically, but it rises exponentially. Your margins increase not in a linear fashion, but they increase in an exponential fashion. So the net present value of Oroco's asset of the assets of major mining companies starts to increase quite significantly with an increase in commodity prices. I think we've got other factors that make the sector even more exciting and one where I think people people should consider a position in, in copper over the coming months or years, really. And that is that we are at a point in history where copper, and I think there's a number of metals that are in a, in a similar position, we're just not discovering it at the rate that we used to. And those discoveries that we're making require significantly higher prices of copper to make them economic. They're deeper, the grades are lower, et cetera. So we don't get that supply coming online until copper prices increase from where they are today. So the discovery of large amounts of copper that was taking place in the 1990s and into the early noughts has fallen off a cliff in the last decade. The number of major discoveries in the last five or six or even eight years dwarfs what was made in any single year in the 1990s. Those discoveries in the 1990s are in production. Some of them are in the process of decline from age, and we're not going to be able to meet future 
copper demands unless we significantly step up investment in copper production and do so at higher copper prices that are needed to justify those tougher to mine deposits. So assets, relatively easy to mine assets at service that are amenable to low-cost open pit mining methods like Santa Tomas will benefit exponentially. And I think that's what investors should be aware of, that there's trillions of dollars of investment coming into renewable energies. All the major economies in the world are lined up behind that goal. The economics point to future energy supplies as coming from renewables. And that involves the generation of electricity through wind, solar, nuclear power, for instance. That requires the transmission of that electricity in many cases over large distances, sending energy generated by wind turbines in the middle of the United States to the coasts, for instance, requires significantly increased investments and more robust electrical grids than currently exist in the United States. That's going to mean a lot for copper. And then, of course, when that electricity gets to its end user, it is turned into heat or cooling or kinetic energy via much more copper intensive technologies than we utilize today. It's all about energy transmission. Battery chemistry can change. Modes of generating electricity, whether it's nuclear or wind or solar, all those modes, they can change. They can vary, but you cannot convey electricity without copper, period. But yet there's a lithium buzz in the air. There's a potential nickel buzz in the air. There's all these things that the market likes right now that people look for. I'm constantly asked about lithium projects. I'm never really asked about copper projects, although most of my sponsors right now are copper oriented with a couple of exceptions. I don't think we're going to ever see a four or five banger with the price of copper itself with the metal, and then it's not economic. We could see that, and we probably will see that with the equities as soon as everybody starts thinking by everybody. I mean everybody. I mean the institutions, all the investors, and the general public starts asking us, do you know of any good copper companies that you can talk about? It's just not in the air, but it will happen because the predictors are saying, well, the next flavor is going to be copper. That's right. And everybody in the mining industry, those people who are in the business of planning the national power grid, they understand what's coming. Mining executives are somewhere between realization and panic in terms of the upcoming copper crunch. Copper is one of the top five traded mined commodities in the world. Oil and gas, aluminum, copper, steel are the big number. Those are commodities traded in the multi-hundred of billions of dollars per year. All the other metals, they're big, they're important, they're required for certain technologies, but none of those other metals are common across all of the possible technologies of future energy generation and usage. Copper is the center of that industry, the center of those technologies. It's why Goldman Sachs called copper the new oil, being the commodity that will be in focus in the coming century to modernize and power our lives. I guess it's staring us in the face. It's one of the biggest commodities that's needed. It's going to be facing a huge crunch as the paucity of discoveries, the lack of mines on the drawing board meet increased demand as soon as 2025 by most predictions. So it is something that I think investors should be looking at. They have a choice of major mining companies with a copper component. There's no major mining companies out there that are pure play coppers investments, or they could look at the mid-tier companies that are the smaller companies with mostly copper production, or they could look at companies like Oroco, which is a very pure play copper investment. Our market cap is currently about $150 million. The value of the metal in the ground, $8.5 billion multiplied by today's copper price of, I think it's three seventy dollars or so, multi tens of billions of dollars of in situ metal value. So there's great leverage there. And there's even greater leverage, I think, as a consequence of where Oroco is in its phase of development. Recently announced a large copper endowment, and it's on its way to defining what that means in a preliminary economic assessment. So the future looks particularly bright for copper, even if the current market is ignoring commodities, but the pendulum will swing and investors will become more and more focused on it as it does. I think the article in the New York Times last week could have been titled, tell us why copper and copper equities are going to boom without using the word copper. There's 3,000 words on why the US is shifting with huge multi-billion and even trillion dollar forces behind it towards a copper intensive decade or two or three. Adam, it's always great to catch up with you each time. I seem to learn quite a bit, and I hope our audience is as well. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to chatting with you again in a few weeks. You're very welcome, Ellis. As you can tell, I'm always keen to evangelize on the subject of copper. Very encouraged that it's going to start to come into focus, as the New York Times article of last week indicated. I'll be happy to share a link with you and listeners. Look on Oroco's Twitter page, or I'll provide you with a link, and perhaps it can be attached to this broadcast.
I've been speaking with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp. Oroco trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the ticker symbol ORRCF. Go to the company's website, orocoresourcecorp.com. For Adam Smith and Oroco Resource Corp., I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com